Mozart and Beethoven are the two most prolific composers of all time. In other words, they didn't just produce the greatest works. They produced the most. Like no one has composed more works than Mozart or Beethoven. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? All right, today's episode's a little different. One of my favorite podcasts is called, and it's the best name ever, it's called How to Take Over the World by Ben Wilson. And I'm bringing Ben on today. And today we talk about essentially the cliff notes from all the podcasts he's done so you can understand what are the five traits you need to have if you want to take over the world or, I don't know, be heard in your next Zoom meeting. And we look at these iconic personalities, Steve Jobs, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, Thomas Edison, Vladimir Putin. And he talks about some of the things they have in common and also the things you wouldn't expect that they have in common. It was super eye-opening for me to see what makes them tick and what makes them great. And at the very end, we get into some of Ben's half-baked startup ideas. He works in the podcasting and media space, so he has some really interesting insights on what the future of that looks like. But I really hope you enjoyed today's episode with Ben. If you're at all interested in history and biographies, this one should be a fun one. All right. Today, I have Ben Wilson, who has a podcast called, and it's the best name in the podcast space, How to Take Over the World. This is a podcast I found. I was listening to My First Million and Sam Part mentioned it in passing. At first, I was like, an amazing podcast name. And what he does is he takes very famous people from history, from Julius Caesar, Napoleon, to Steve Jobs, Vladimir Putin, and he reads a lot of content around them. He devours content around it. And then he serves it up to you in a way that is very easy to digest, almost like Khan Academy, what he did for education, Ben is doing for history. I mean, it was so good. I reached out to him and begged him to come on. So Ben, thanks for coming on today. Jim, thanks very much for having me. So I heard about your podcast. I started listening to it. And then I quickly devoured every single episode. And I sent it to my business partner. And I forgot I sent it to him. And two weeks later, he's like, hey, that podcast you sent, How to Take Over the World. I listened to every single one. And it's just interesting, the traction that you've gotten. So I want to get into that. And I'm really excited to talk about the lessons you've learned. But just to start out, how did you even come up with this name and this concept? I'm glad you like the name because actually everyone in my life told me it was a bad name when I wanted to start it. They, I think they were all kind of vaguely embarrassed by it. And uh, I'll back up. How I came up with the concept was essentially just an extension of a hobby, right? So I've always loved reading biographies. I've always liked history. And I was found myself attracted to these biographies because once I would get into them and I would see how these great historical figures acted and when I was kind of immersed in their lives, it would just really fire me up. It would really inspire me. And I liked that feeling. So I was reading all these biographies and I thought I should just create something from this. I should create a podcast from this because it will help me focus my reading a little bit more and, and help me digest the content a little bit more, I think, and just pull more out of these biographies. The name How to Take Over the World came with the idea. It was always going to be How to Take Over the World. It hit me like a bolt of lightning. People didn't like it for the reason that I think it's a great title is it just forces you to have a reaction, right? Some people love it. Some people hate it, but you just can't really ignore it. So if you think about like an NPR podcast name, they have this big built-in distribution channel because they're NPR. So all of their podcast titles are fresh air, 
or through line. They're nothing titles. You just, which is great because, because you're going to listen to an NPR podcast anyways, because you have to, because it's on the radio and they can let the content speak for, for themselves. But I didn't have that luxury. So I wanted something that would make people sit up a little bit and say, what now? What did you say that was called? How to take over the world? The other thing I liked about it a little bit is it's over the top in a way that almost gives you plausible deniability, right? Like I can almost say, ah, just kidding. The old stereotype of the high school kid who's, hey, we should kiss. Ah, just kidding. Unless you're serious. No, just kidding. And I can do that. This is a podcast about how to take over the world. Ah, just kidding. Unless you're serious. Unless you really want to learn how to take over the world, then it is about that. So I ran with it. It's great for a million reasons. First, how to's. Anytime I put how to in a headline for a podcast or an email, it works really well. And it's extremely aspirational and it teases the content where you want to learn more. Where it's bad is if someone's going to Apple Podcasts or they're searching online, you're not stuffing keywords in there. Podcasts about startups or the founder podcast or whatever that would be. And so it's tough maybe for acquisition. I think it's great for conversion and brand building. So well done there. It's also a little tough from a domain name perspective and like people finding it. It's just a lot of words. So that has been a struggle. But yeah, even when you turn into an acronym, there are quite a few letters there, which make it a a little difficult. Yeah, everyone's always asking, how many T's are in in it again? So the thing that I like about it is you take a slant where you're like, okay, I read this book, but then you have action items. Okay, here's what we can learn from it. So let's fast forward to 2021. If you are a founder, if you're working at a tech company or or doing whatever you're doing, here's what you can apply from it. Because sometimes I see that is missing when I'm devouring content. I actually like it when you serve it up. So we're going to get into that. The goal of today's podcast is to get all of the greatest hits out of you so people can take over the world. So we talked about this beforehand. I was like, let's break it down. What are the traits you need to have to take over the world, whether that is world domination or you just want to own a boardroom? I'd love to get into that. What are some common traits that these world rulers have? And what are those threads we can piece together that like someone like myself could learn from when I'm just trying to run this little company? The first one that a lot of my listeners make fun of me for is talking about their eating habits. Because (laughs) I think it was during when I was studying Edison that I noticed that Edison had these real weird eating habits. So he would, he had this idea that you only needed to drink milk. So for a time in his life, he had an all milk diet and was people worried about him when he was in his early 20s because he would eat so little. Then I just kind of thought, oh yeah, Steve Jobs is kind of like that. And then I remembered... And wasn't Caesar kind of like that? And wasn't Napoleon kind of like that? And then it just kind of hit me like, oh, they're all like this. And then I started looking into it and Putin is like this. And it just all of these incredible, great conquerors, inventors, CEOs, founders have this weird linkage. And I actually think it's a really important one, not for the food part of it, because who cares, right? But because as I thought about it from the context of Edison, what I realized was This is a person who can't be bothered to eat because he is addicted to inventing. This guy would just be at the workbench 24 hours a day if he could be. And he basically was. He often slept under his desk. And so, again, when he was in his 20s, people legit worried about him. Okay, you're not taking care of hygiene. You smell. You don't come home to sleep. You don't eat. And it just hit me like, oh, if this were anything other than inventing and founding businesses, people would call him what he is, which is an addict. If he were doing heroin or if he were doing meth instead of inventing the light bulb, people would have no problem saying that you're an addict. 
And so I think that's one of the biggest takeaways has been for me is that all these people are addicted to what they do. With the food component, I'm thinking of two things. Is it one, were they so into their passion where they didn't even want to have to make a decision on maybe what to wear or what to eat? So it was the same thing or it was just very minimal. So all of their energy goes to that or were they pioneers with intermittent fasting and they were just ahead of all of us? So there's a Naval tweet where he said the optimal state for performance is slightly hungry or something like that. So I do think there is something to the idea of just like intermittent fasting, right? But you also have the component of it of Napoleon said, if you want to dine well, eat with Compasaris. If you want to eat poorly, eat with Lebrun, who is one of those generals who he's making fun of. If you want to eat quickly, eat with me. And that's just because it was, like you said, he's just minimizing the amount of of time and thought he had to put into food because he wanted to think about other things. Yeah. Okay. I feel like that leads to another one that you have on your list around energy, because I was listening to a few of your podcasts and I started to call it out, but then you drew some really clear examples of people and their energy. Could you talk through that? Yeah. One of the questions that interested me the most in these biographies is, what are these people the best at? In other words, is Mozart or Beethoven the greatest composer because they're just straight up the smartest? Like they just have the highest IQ? Or is it because they're the most innovative or they're the most charismatic? What is the thing that all of these people spike on? They peak on. And I realized that it wasn't IQ. They weren't necessarily, they're always intelligent, but they're not always the most intelligent. They're always charismatic. They're not necessarily the most charismatic person in their inner circle. They are always the most energetic. That's the thing, number one thing that people comment on. And so you'll see Mozart and Beethoven are the two most prolific composers of all time. In other words, they didn't just produce the greatest works. They produce the most, like no one has composed more works than Mozart or Beethoven. And you see the same thing with like the number of battles that Napoleon fought, right? He marched extremely quickly as like he was anxious to be in battle. So energy is a funny thing. People talk about it in terms of work ethic and work ethic is a little funny just because it's this thing that people almost expect you to be able to control. And I wonder sometimes with their energy, I don't know if this was something that they could control in some ways. In the same way that like Steph Curry is just a genetic freak in terms of his hand-eye coordination, I sometimes think these people were just genetic freaks in the amount of energy they had and the ability they had to work really hard for long amounts of time. Yeah, you gave this example of Napoleon as he was sailing, maybe it was to Egypt or somewhere, and he stopped in an island for four days or five days. And within that time frame, he overthrew the ruler, like implanted a king, created a democracy and launched a currency. And then he wrote all these letters back to France. And then he went and conquered Egypt. And there's so many examples of this because not only energy, but it's even diversifying energy. Oh, in addition to being this great conqueror, I'm also a a prolific writer. Any thought on how they're diversifying their energy versus focusing? Because myself as a, a business owner, like I can't have energy, but how do you maximize where that energy goes to be on impactful things. It seems like these guys are also very calculated in where that energy goes. So that's a really interesting way to phrase it and a really interesting, I'll give you a little preview. The episode I'm working on right now is of a guy named Laszlo Polgar, because we were just talking before this, that you have a couple of kids. I just had my first child. She's nine months old. And so I've been thinking about how to raise this girl. And so Laszlo Polgar is interesting to me because he wrote a book called Raise a Genius. So he was this Hungarian psychologist and 
he had the idea that you could raise anyone to be a genius. So uh, he found a woman who luckily loved him, but who also was willing to go along with his experiment, who he said, we're going to raise our children to be geniuses. And so they did it. And he decided on the topic of, of chess. He's going to raise all of his children to be chess geniuses. They ended up having three daughters, and all three of them were just unbelievable geniuses in chess, including his youngest daughter, Judith, is like the greatest women's chess player of all time, hands down, was number one in women's chess for 20 years straight as like the Serena Williams of chess. So, okay, so clearly his methodology and his approach, there's something there, right? And what was interesting to me is one of the things that he talks about is that's important for this is specializing early. So he had all of his daughters playing chess when they were three years old. And so you would think, okay, that's good. But the trade-off you make is that they can't be any good at anything else, right? These girls are just going to be chess robots, which turns out to not be the case at all. This girl, Judith, who is the greatest chess player, women's chess player of all time, was ranked internationally for table tennis. She could have been a professional table tennis player if she wanted to be. She's also a phenomenal swimmer. Also, all his girls spoke between five and eight languages. And it's like the same thing that you were just talking about. Like they had all this energy to do all of these different things. So to me, it's like almost baffling, right? So you have to ask, first of all, are these people just freaks? But I also think when you find the thing that you were born to do, it gives you energy instead of taking energy from you, right? So on a certain level, like if you love chess and you're playing chess for six to eight hours a day, then when you're done playing chess, you're not exhausted. You're not like, ooh, that took all my mental energy. When it's, oh, hey, I also want you to play table tennis for an hour or two, you can say, okay, I got the energy for that. Or, hey, you should study French for an hour. Okay, I've got the energy for that. I've been building energy all day instead of spending it. And so I think that explains it a little bit. That's really interesting. And I don't know if it's like the food component, so you're not overeating and lethargic, concentrate on things that you're into. So it creates energy rather than takes it away. Honestly, that's been one of my biggest takeaways from re or hearing you talk through all of these different leaders is the energy component and where that goes. The other thing that I go back to, to be this ruler, you have to get people to be bought in on where you're, what you're trying to rule, right? You can't just conquer and make everybody a slave. And so how much of it is being charismatic, being well-spoken and being this person that can stand on a stage and conduct themselves? Who out of everybody you're reading does that really well? Because honestly, your Philip the Great episode is really interesting to see a charisma with someone like that, that you think is more of a, I think he called him the Chad of the Chads, which was amazing. But talk to me about charisma. Yeah. So Philip, for those who don't know, was the father of Alexander the Great. I did describe him as the Chad of all Chads. And he, it's true, he could just kind of, he could charm whoever he wanted to. His son, Alexander the Great, was kind of the same way. When you talk about it, the number one person who I think of who, who stands out, because we have all seen it, and all of us who are in this space is Steve Jobs. And we've all seen it on the public stage. If you've seen any of his presentations, any of his speeches, if that's something that you want to do in your life, you want to lead people, I think you should watch every single word that Steve Jobs spoke on stage. He's the best person in the 21st century ever to have done it. And apparently in one-on-one settings, it was even more intense. People talk about this like trance that he could put them in. He would just lock eyes with them and stare at them. And it was clearly, so a thing that gives me a little bit of hope because I don't feel like I have 
natural charisma. I'm not the type of person who people just have always naturally fallen in love with me and I'm more handsome than Brad Pitt and I, I can't help it and every woman I meet falls in love with me. I'm not quite like that, unfortunately. But apparently Steve Jobs made a study of this. He had all these tricks that he would use that included staring at people for a really long time to make them uncomfortable, but make them kind of focus in on him. And all these, he had all these little tricks. So I, I do think it's something that you can study and get better at. With him, and I've read about it when I was reading his biography, and then you articulate it really well, things were either amazing or they were horrible. There was no in-between. And I think that gets people to react, right? If it's amazing, like, wow, he approves of me, I'm going to go harder. Or if it's horrible, you're fearful for your livelihood or for his approval. And I've had a previous boss that was like that super charismatic. And if something's amazing, he's stopping everything on the floor and he's praising you. Or if you're in a meeting and things aren't going well, you are just getting fried in front of everybody. But it would work because it was like these velvet punching gloves. I don't know if that's something you see across others or if it's just Steve Jobs, because sometimes even myself, when I'm like trying to give feedback, I'm like, oh, this is kind of good. And I'm like a little wishy-washy. It's okay, that's it. I got to be Steve Jobs and go to one extreme or the other. I, I don't know if there's any thought on that. Yeah, he certainly wasn't the only one to feel that way. The story I think of is, well, well, two things. One, I was just watching a clip from The Last Dance, that documentary about Michael Jordan. Oh, dude, that is so good. Oh my gosh. It is so good. If you like how to take over the world, if you like this type of stuff, it's required watching. You must watch The Last Dance. Incredible. But it's one of the last moments in the documentary. And he said, the reason I'm doing this is I want people to see my approach. And yeah, I was intense. And yeah, I rubbed some people the wrong way. But I wanted to win. I wanted everyone to win. I brought other people along with me. And if they didn't want to be a part of that, they didn't have to. But some people criticized me. And this was the part that really stuck out to me. Because they've never wanted anything. And so Michael Jordan, on a certain level, you can't affect, you can't fake. Steve Jobs did this because he really felt that way. Like he wanted everything to be perfect. And uh, he was a little bit intentional about it. Like he definitely would some things be like, no, this sucks just to get a reaction out of people to make sure that it was great. But I really think that when he saw something that he thought was ugly, it just filled him with like revulsion. He couldn't take it, right? There's this story about when he built his home in Palo Alto, they didn't have a washer and dryer for a year or like 18 months or something crazy like that. And uh, his wife, Lorene, talks about it, that he just couldn't support, he couldn't take the idea of having anything less than perfect. So he had to figure out what was the perfect washer and dryer to have in his house, or else he wouldn't be able to have it in his house. It's the same thing with Michael Jordan. I don't think it's just that he decided that this was the strategy. Like, I think it just bothered him to no end when he thought someone was not giving their full effort. And so I don't know that it's something you can fake, but it is something that's universal amongst great achievers. Yeah. It's who they are to the core, and it's just, it has to come out of them, and it comes out of them that way. And as an aside, a Michael Jordan podcast would be amazing. It'd be hard to uncover anything that has been said because there's so much about him, but doing it from your lens could be really fun. Okay, so before we go to the next thing, I just had some, as I'm trying to get all the secret sauce from you on these traits, I had a few others written down, half insider, half outsider. I had daringness. One was on being good writers. I don't, it really was Napoleon and, and Caesar, but the half insider, half outsider, can you elaborate on that, on what that means? Does that give someone the perspective they need to rule the world? I think, yeah. So in terms of just to give your audience the background, what I'm referring to, 
So you see this with, so Alexander the Great, who I'm also working on an episode about right now, is a great example. So his dad is the king of Macedon, and his mom is from Epirus. She's from somewhere else, but she's not Macedonian nobility. So he is literally half insider. His dad is literally the king. He's half outsider. His mom's a foreigner. And you just see this over and over. So you see Napoleon is card-carrying French nobility is able to go to the schools that are reserved for the French nobility in the late 18th century. But he's a Corsican. He grows up speaking Italian. He always spoke French with an accent. Many people don't know that. And so he wasn't truly like an insider in France or in the French military. He was kind of an outsider, but kind of an insider. See, same thing with Steve Jobs, right? He's literally born in Silicon Valley. So you're he's obviously an insider. Having said that, his biological father is a Syrian immigrant. He is adopted. His dad does not work in tech. His dad is a mechanic. So he's a little bit of an outsider as well. Part of it is, yes, they have all the access to the resources of an insider and all that those support mechanisms. And yet they're able to have a slightly different perspective that allows them to do great things. They're able to be a little more innovative because they're also outsiders. I also think that gives them motivation. Much is made of the Napoleon complex. And Napoleon actually wasn't that short. I don't think there was much to him being a short guy in that driving him. But I think the fact that he was a Corsican, the fact that he wasn't a French guy, did spur him to want to prove himself. And so I think that's why you see so many great Silicon Valley startups are founded by immigrants and people who are a little bit of outsiders because it gives them that, that motivation and that perspective. That's so interesting. It's almost a chip on their shoulder that helps drive them to do these insane things. Okay, that, that was super helpful. We've got the cheat sheet here, so we are prepared to take over the world. I, I wanted to know, so what's something that's unexpected as you're going through all these guys that really surprised you, a common trait that they had? One thing that surprised me was the extent to which they travel in packs. So it is always interesting to see who knows each other. Right. So to me, one of the craziest ones is the 19th century when you go to Europe. Right. So you're studying Nietzsche. He also knew Sigmund Freud. He knew Wagner. He knew Liszt. He knew Goethe. He knew Schopenhauer. And if you go, it's the same thing. All the great composers, all the great artists. If you go back to Renaissance Italy, Michelangelo also knew Da Vinci and Raphael and like all the other great artists of the time. And to me, that was a really surprising. And B, just kind of makes me a little less likely to try and go out there and be like a lone wolf. It makes me think, okay, well, where is that pack that I can travel in? Where is that group that I can learn from and we can be great together? It's interesting. It's almost like they were good in ascending, but when they're surrounded by other people that really challenge them, it almost takes them up a notch, it sounds. Because you, you hear the quote, I think Tim Ferriss said, it, you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with. And it makes total sense that it's true for these people. Yeah. The other thing I would say is it seemed how to take over the world seemed like a good idea to me. So I'm doing research. I'm actually done with research. I'm writing an episode on Alexander the Great. And there's this book, this biography of Alexander that was written in like 200 AD, I want to say. So, so almost 2000 years ago is written by a guy named Arian. He was actually a Roman citizen, but he lived in Greece and he wrote this biography of Alexander. As I'm reading it, it's fascinating because this is a guy who lived a few hundred years after after Alexander, but much closer to his time than ours. And he is the whole time telling you the great, the attributes that made Alexander great and the pitfalls that made him mortal. And 
I was like, man, this is a lot like an episode of How to Take Over the World. And then you study more about the guy and you realize that it basically was an episode of How to Take Over the World. So this was a common literary form at the time to tell the stories of great people throughout history and analyze their lives. And this guy, Polgar, who I was talking about, who raised his daughter to be the greatest chess champion of all time, he read over 400 biographies of great people before he embarked on his, his research. Napoleon slept with Julius Caesar's campaigns under his pillow. And he said, if you want to be a great general, the only thing to do is study the campaigns of Alexander, study the campaigns of Caesar. So all these people were obsessed with studying the lives of the great ones who came before them. So this isn't just my hobby. It is like an actual trend that people who themselves become great are really fascinated with other great people who came before him. So first, he basically stole the format from Aries. So we, we got that understand, understood. Second, I mean, it makes total sense learning. And for me, I think it's a fun way to learn about history because if I pick up a history book, I'm going to fall asleep within two seconds. But when you can do it from the narrative of someone's story that's done crazy things, then it's interesting. And then putting the, okay, here are the takeaways from it. Do this, don't do that. Very cool. You also had a note in here that Jay-Z, Biggie, Busta Rhymes, and DMX all went to the same high school. And one, that is insane and blew my mind. Two, I'm so disappointed in myself that I did not know that as a 90s rap enthusiast. I'm so disappointed with myself, but that's crazy. How close were they in age? They're not too far off, a lot of those. No, they're not. No, they're not far off. In fact, I know Jay-Z and Busta Rhymes had a rap battle at some point in high school. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's so cool. Oh man, if, if that would have happened today, there'd be so many posts of that on TikTok. Dang, if only smartphones were around then. It's so interesting that you have done episodes on someone like Vladimir Putin. How should I learn from, what's the one takeaway we could take from Vladimir Putin when we want to take over the world, but maybe in a positive way? <sighs> yeah, so Putin and I, at first it was going to be a Halloween episode, right? And so the fact that I did a Putin episode, I don't, that doesn't mean that I think he's necessarily a, a great guy or I'm a big fan or anything. I do think one of the things that's, is people don't want to study sometimes the life of a Putin or a Hitler or a Stalin, because obviously like we don't, they're bad people. <laughs> we don't want to be these people. And I get that. But I also think it's a little dangerous. If we, if only sociopaths study power, then only sociopaths will be able to hold power, right? And so I do think it's important to study the lives of like a Hitler and a Stalin or a Putin, who's, let's be honest, it's not Hitler, okay? People go over the top with, with how bad of a guy he is sometimes. But I think it's important to study and learn from them, as weird as that sounds or feels, because we don't want them to have tricks or knowledge or, or know things that no one else does because we're unwilling to study their tactics. Even if you aren't going to employ covert assassinations and every tactic that they are willing to employ, we should know about how they do what they do. In terms of Putin himself, there's actually a ton to learn from him. He had a really interesting career. For me, one of the interesting things was how long he served before he wanted to be the guy, if that makes sense. He was just the guy. There's a person at every company who when you just have crap dumped on your desk, you're like, ooh, I can call, at one of my old jobs is Lacey. I can call Lacey and she will do this and she will do it well and I won't have to worry about it. And it sucks, so I don't wanna do it, but Lacey will do it and Lacey will do it well. Like Putin did that until he was in his mid forties before he ever got like any sort of position. So just like being willing to be that person for a long time and for the right people will put you in positions where you can succeed eventually. Yeah, it's almost like just playing the game, being relevant, being consistent, and eventually kind of waiting for your time. No, very good insight. So I want to talk about you. 
first, how do you even prepare for these episodes? How many books or materials are you going through to create this content? Because you talk and it's like you were a part of it. I don't know how you're even able to retain all that information. I read a book and two years later, someone asks me how it is and I can barely remember the subtitle. So what's your process? Yeah. So first of all, I want to say I'm no different than you. This is kind of part of the reason I did it is because I was sick and tired of always forgetting everything that I had read. So what my process is, I always do read at least two biographies because I feel like if I just read one, then I'm just getting someone else's perspective. And I just kind of want to be able to triangulate my own thoughts on someone. So I always want to read at least two. And if I can, I would like for at least one of those sources to a firsthand account. If they wrote an autobiography, I always want to read that. Or if their friends or close associates wrote any biographies, I want to read that. I want to get as close to the firsthand sources as I can without, I'm not a historian, so I'm always reading books. And then what I do is I just highlight and make notes. And then at the end of each chapter, I take in the book extensive notes. I bullet out my takeaways from each chapter. Then at the very end, I bullet out I read through each of those end of chapter pages and write down my high level thoughts from the entire book. And then I triangulate those thoughts with my thoughts from the next book. And then I put it all into an outline and then into a script. So that's how I do it. That's awesome. It sounds simple, but hard because it's so much work you have to put into, but it's probably pretty cool when you can see the parallels between the different books, but then the different leaders. So what's kind of the goal with the podcast? Because you're getting insane traction. Where are you wanting to go with it? I feel like you could be packaging all this eventually into a book, a course, like whatever that could be. But I'm interested to see, are you going to be doing Pablo Escobar? Are you going to do Peter Thiel? Who's next on the list? Yeah, so in terms of what the future brings, I'm going to do a premium tier. So I should say, first of all, luckily some... People who love the podcast have stepped in and have made some financial arrangements that are going to allow me to work on it more or less full time now. So I'll be able to produce a lot more episodes than I've been producing, which is awesome. And uh, no secret there, that's uh, Sam Parr and, and Sean Puri, who, who are the hosts of My First Million. So step one is just I'm going to be producing more episodes and there will be a, a premium tier if you want to hear it even more often. And I'm looking forward to making more of it. In terms of what comes after that, yeah. A book seems like it would make sense at some point. Obviously, the content could be turned into something like a course or something like that. But I don't know. Podcasting, I love podcasting. So I I don't know what else I'll do in the future. But I do know that if I could, I would just talk about this stuff all day. So uh, the podcast is going to be mostly free forever. And that's always going to be a part and probably going to be the main part of what I do. Yeah. I would definitely pay a subscription for it. I know there's a podcast called Founder or Founders that um, I pay for. And it's more just like taking a bio and do a, doing a summary of it. I love how you weave multiple biographies and I love these summaries. But yeah, I, I think you could monetize this or go about it a lot of different ways and be really successful. So that that's super awesome to hear. Okay, so one thing I always like to do, you read so much. I love doing startup idea brainstorms. So I'd love to know what are some half-baked startup ideas that you have? So I'll start with, so people don't think I'm totally off my rocker, I guess I'll start with the area that I work in, which is media, something I know like a little bit about, right? The first thing is Apple and Spotify have just made this change to allow more subscriptions. I think that this is going to become more of a thing. But basically every podcast you listen to monetizes with ads will continue to be a part of the equation, but I think you're going to see more podcast channels, more subscription podcasts. And I think that's going to be for people who are creators and do this kind of work. I think that's going to be a bigger part of the mix in terms of 
how they make money. And then I think you're going to see those people expanding into video. I essentially think we have reached or we're close to reaching peak Netflix. The idea that you're going to have one media subscription to rule them all. You're going to have Netflix and Spotify and that's it because that'll serve all your content needs. I think we're basically at the end of that. We're going to see more podcasters doing subscriptions. Those are going to start to get bundled. And the same thing with TV channels or streaming services. You're going to start to see more niche streaming services. And those are going to start to get bundled as well. So you're just going to see more variety, more options. I totally agree. As we've gone to unbundling, I mean, it's a joke with my other friends, like how many subscriptions we have. You hear about a new TV show. It's, oh, wait, you've got to get the Paramount subscription. It's, oh, my Lord. It's like my bill's like approaching $300 with all these subscriptions. I love that approach that you're talking about. And you just see the investment that Spotify is making in podcasts. Obviously, you've got The Ringer. They did Joe Rogan, like Amazon invested in Smartlist. We are early days, I think, in that. If I was looking for, for these streaming services and these podcast channels that are going to be coming, what do I think the future looks like? I think The Ringer is probably the top example. The Athletic is also a really good example because of how tightly focused it is. If you're looking for something in the streaming space that is like that, I actually think, as going to seem like a weird example, but I think the Hallmark Channel is what people should be looking at. Just because I remember looking at the data and it's something that's 20 something minutes, if I recall correctly, that people spend surfing through Netflix on average before they start a show. I believe it. I'm guilty. Yeah, right. So you experience it. I experience it. We all know it. And so it's like they have so much content and yet you can't find anything that you're looking for. Every winter, my sisters are like Hallmark addicts. They love it's like catnip for them, right? They eat it up. And it's because it's just such a tight loop of stimulus and response, right? They know exactly what they want and it gives it to them every time with like slight small permutations of first he's a business guy who's a widower and now he's a prince who's a widower. And But you're going to see more of that type of stuff of streaming services that are one type of content. They know exactly what you want and they're going to give it to you over and over. Yeah, become more fragmented and niche and specialized and know their audience and people pay a, a premium for it. Very cool. What, what else? Any other half-baked ideas? So, uh, yeah. Have you heard of endocrine disruptors, Jim? Have you heard this phrase before? No. So this is something that is increasing research emerging about this. It essentially comes from plastics, what they call microplastics. There are just plastics everywhere, all in our environment. And it turns out that we're eating small amounts of plastic every single day. And that plastic is disruptive to your endocrine system, which I can't tell you everything about your endocrine system, but essentially it makes, it has a lot of adverse health effects, including on your reproductive system. People hypothesize that it might be one of the reasons that people have more fertility issues than they used to. So it's like really bad that we have all these plastics in our lives. I was listening to a podcast about this actually on Joe Rogan, and he had this scientist, I think she's from Harvard, talking about how dangerous these endocrine disruptors are. And I'm listening to it at night and I go to brush my teeth to go to bed afterwards. And I realized, oh, I'm just taking like little pieces of plastic and just rubbing it all over my mouth, right? So now I'm freaked out. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I want to put plastic in my mouth. So I go online and I search plastic-free toothbrushes and I find a boar hair toothbrush. They take hair from the tail of a boar and uh, they put it in the toothbrush and uh, kind of like in the old days, right? They would have horsehair toothbrushes back in the, in the 1800s. So I get this toothbrush. I actually bought like 20. I try giving one to my wife and she goes, boar hair? I say, yeah. She says, like a pig? 
And I was like, yeah, I mean, I guess so. Yeah, I try not to think of it like that. But yeah, I guess so, like a pig. And uh, so she wouldn't use it, but I'm using it. And I just think that this is going to be a huge thing in the future. And not just, okay, toothbrushes, whatever. But there are going to be businesses and influencers and media channels that help people move away from having plastics in their life once people kind of realize how dangerous this is for them and how unhealthy it is. So I think that the plastic-free economy is going is a huge thing that's coming and there's a ton of room for growth there for people who can help people figure out how to get plastics out of their life. All right, so I can already see the whole growth strategy here cuz this is genius. First, anytime you can lead with a did you know and fear, you're going to get people's attention. And then second, I think you lean into the bore component, you call them like bore brushes and you just address yes it's from bore but here's how we clean it, here's why it's great for you. You make it a cute mascot. This is really good. I'm actually surprised I haven't heard about this because there's so much around plastic and like having kids and stuff. Wow, that, that's a good one. So I literally just want someone to come into my life and tell me like, okay, A, B, C, D, E, F. Here's all the things you can do to make this an issue that you never have to worry about again. Because you're talking about fear. Like once you, it does create this weird like revulsion response of like once the plastics are bad for you, you just realize that they're everywhere in your life. And every time you like come into contact with one, you just kind of have a little reaction of, oh, it's a little thing I wish I didn't have to do. I'm a little afraid to go down that rabbit hole. But yeah, it's that's a pretty good one. All right. So the question I like to end with everybody is, what's the nicest thing anyone has done for you in your professional career? It's not my professional career per se, but the thing that I have to mention, or I'll, I'll be in trouble, is that my, one of my bosses a few years ago set me up with my now wife. So obviously that was the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me. And I don't think my wife would be too happy if I didn't mention that first. How, how did that, is that like an arranged marriage? Or was he like, hey, Ben, you should <laughs> go to the copy room right now. There's someone in there you should go talk to. Sight unseen, he brought a minister into the office and just said, this is the one for you. Are you ready? <laughs> no, it's actually... I was not working for him anymore. And I actually just ran into him. And I had worked for him probably three or four years previous. He was my boss, but he'd been a good friend and mentor to me. And so we would talk about my relationship woes. And he asked if I was still single. I said, yeah. And I said, you know, there's a girl down the street who I think is about your age and you should meet her. And so he set us up and it was uh, happily ever after that. Man, that's a good boss. Needs like a commission or something on that. That's uh, very impressive. <laughs> He did get like special treatment, special placement at the wedding. So he got his reward. Yeah, he gets the first piece of cake or something. Yeah, yeah, something like that. The other thing I'll mention is my very first job. I worked in management consulting and I came in young, dumb, 20 something, fresh out of college. And I thought I was a hot shot. And apparently the partners at the firm also thought that I had some promise. And so they put me on a really big project working with our biggest client, big Fortune 500 company, and doing a major transformation project for them. So I'm excited. I go, I dive in, I'm living that consultant life, feeling awesome. And I was just <laughs> not ready at all. So did not realize necessarily the politics that come in with any large organization like that, and that were certainly present in this particular situation, I didn't realize that as like an outside consultant, that I could be even be a part of these politics in this big company. But anyways, I found myself on the wrong side of a power struggle. And so at the end of it, they essentially said, hey, we need this guy off the project. He's too close with John Doe. And I felt like it was a real 
black eye for me, like my first job, first project. And they're like, hey, we, we don't like you're off the project. I, I essentially got fired from the project and uh, really shook my confidence. And one of the founders of the company, who was also a partner in the firm, just kind of called me into the office and said, okay, Ben, it is my full-time job to make sure that, that you can be a good consultant, that I still believe in you, that this was just a bad thing that happened in your career. This is just a bump and you're going to be fine. And he did. He started off and, and put me on some projects that were like a little less demanding, just so I could hit him out of the park and really seem like an all-star and then kind of ramped me up. I ended up leaving that job, I don't know, three years later or something like that. But at the end of it, I felt like, okay, I'm a good consultant. This is something I can do. And I just kind of think about how my career might have gone differently if he hadn't done that with me. And if I had just felt I come into my career, my career and immediately just get rocked. And uh, so that was one of the nicest and most important things anyone's ever done for me. Right. It's one of those formative inflection points where you're making this big transition from student to professional. And it definitely could have gone one way or another, but someone's having the confidence in you and pushing you forward. It gives you that extra bump that probably sets you on a, the path that you're on today. That, that's a really good story. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ben, this has been awesome, man. Super fun for me to be able to pick your brain on this. But again, the podcast is amazing. Where would you like to point people if they want to learn more about you or the podcast or anything else? Yeah. So if you want to listen to the podcast, as I mentioned earlier, the acronym is a little tough, so I'll go slow with it, but it's just the domain is httotw.com, which is uh, the acronym for how to take over the world, how to take over the world, H-T-O-T-W. So you kind of have to think about it, but httotw.com or people can follow me on Twitter at Ben Wilson tweets. Awesome. Yeah. Great acronym. Not an, I think you need more T's in there. So well done. But Ben, thank you so much, man. This has been a blast and excited for the next episodes to come. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money, but I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growthit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of a hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. Hey.